and scholars. You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our Sex Podcast Collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. I'm Nicoletta Heidegger, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I'm really excited to welcome one of my former classmates from Pepperdine, who I'm sitting in her amazing space right now in Burbank, and we will talk about that in the podcast. Adriana Alejandre is a trauma psychotherapist and speaker from Burbank, California. She specializes in adults who struggle with dissociation, PTSD, and traumas like mass shootings, homicide attempts, and other crimes in her own private practice. Adriana is the founder of the internationally recognized Latinx Therapy, director and bilingual podcast that destigmatizes mental health and provides education to combat the stigma through media platforms and mental health services. Her podcast has been featured in iTunes Top 200, Spotify's Top 30 Latin shows, Hip Latina, Fierce by Me Too, and has been heard in over 112 countries. Her mission is to create spaces to spark dialogue about mental health, struggles, and strengths in the Latinx community. On her free time, she enjoys mentoring pregnant teens and loves to hang out with her nine-and-a-half-year-old son. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much, Nico. I can't believe he's nine-and-a-half. I know. He's turning ten in May. How old was he when, he, when we first met at Pepperdine? Uh, three. Wow, that's yeah. crazy. <laughs> um, so like I said, we were sitting in her amazing office. Like, Tell me about this whole like spread that you have here now in Burbank. Yeah, I needed um, a place to grow into. So um, this is a four-suite, um, what do I call it? This is a four-suite office rental. <laughs> <laughs> office um, space. Yeah, office space. Um, we have also, in addition, a group room. I created this storage room into a podcast studio room. Um, and we also have a waiting room. So, yeah. There's a really awesome, like, poster hanging above the building. Oh, um, yes. Yeah. So we do have the corner unit. We're blessed, you know, to have had this opportunity to get this space. And, yeah, the advertising is great. <laughs> I'm so excited for you. And this is an awesome space. And I'm glad we get to record in here. But um, your bio is spectacular. And I noticed myself, like, reading it like excitedly because I'm proud about all the things that you do but it includes some like fucking heavy stuff oh yes um (laughs) how did you know that you wanted to work with like survivors of really traumatic crimes to be honest I I actually get this question a lot and I've realized that it's something that is very close to home I'm very comfortable with it I know it very well unfortunately and I've done my work around it so I think you know I I knew since I was an undergrad that I wanted to go into trauma and I didn't know why but I was gravitated towards it and as I explored you know traineeship sites and I had more courses that spoke about trauma I was really digging the information and that's what actually also led me to my own healing my own therapy in college and to explore it I still wasn't for sure I was still exploring like other areas like anxiety in teens or um, developmental disabilities but ultimately it's it's always been trauma 
I mean, I think a lot of us in this field are attracted to it because of maybe working through our own stuff. Yes. And do you feel like it's necessary to have worked through all of your own things to be able to work with clients dealing with particular trauma? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's essential. Um, I heard a quote yesterday and it was that, um, you know, we don't need wounded healers bleeding onto their clients. And I definitely have to agree. Um, you know, we can definitely bleed, but not on our clients. Mm -hmm. We need to, to our do therapists. <laughs> yeah, we need to do our own work. And yeah, because there's no I mean, at least for me, there's no way to have like, done all of my work. Yeah. You know, and if I were to wait for that, I'd probably never see clients. Right. So no, and a, I, that's what makes us really good therapists most of the time. I, I do have some clients that have thought about it, but then they hesitate because they're like, you know, I have all this. I'm in here, you know, and it's, you know, you doing the work is what makes you human and makes you choose your career path. And if that, this is what it is, that's okay. I imagine you get this question a lot, though, just because people are so surprised that someone would want to do this work with that specific population yeah yeah uh and i i feel very surprised that people don't <laughs> but then you know i open my mind and you know there's there's a field for everybody there's a specialty for everyone you know i cannot imagine seeing myself in real estate you know and i mean I, you kind of are in real estate because you rented out this like awesome office building ish but to my friends <laughs> right no, but yeah, um, you know, there's certain areas where I just don't see myself in. Not to say that I don't like those areas, but just like, you know, my my brain has difficulty conceptualizing what goes into those fields. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's the same with trauma work. How do you take care of yourself when you're working with a day of trauma clients? I stay in. I take my naps. I um, don't digest as much audio. Um, because, you know, doing this work, I listen a lot. I listen attentively. And so I need my quiet time for sure. I need my um, fictional TV time, you know, where I watch my junk shows. Yes. What's <laughs> your junk show? I love all the Chicago PD, love Chicago it. Med, <laughs> Grey's Anatomy shows where it's just Which like... is so interesting because <laughs> I appreciate those shows too, but a lot of them have like trauma in them too. Yeah. Like I love watching Law and Order, like SVU, yes, which same. is like violent <laughs> sex crimes. And it's like, you'd think that I would get enough of that all day, but it's... Yeah, no, I, I still enjoy it, but I know it's like being filmed. So I maintain that. The fantasy. Um, mm -hmm, yeah. What else do you do or not do? Sometimes I just stay in my PJs a little longer. I shower a little later. Um, I order in, you know, I just, I take my time <laughs> with things that I usually have to rush in doing. I'm also a mom. So, you know, I have, I have a lot of roles to fulfill. So yes, I'm a speaker. I'm a therapist. I'm a podcaster. I'm a mom. And then I have a, a doggy at home. <laughs> so I have to, uh, he's a very anxious and traumatized dog. So I, <laughs> of course, that's the I dog that you found. <laughs> Oh, my shadow. Yes. <laughs> Is that their name, shadow? Yeah, that's from the shelter. Um, oh, so th they gave it to him. We would have chosen Wally, but... That just makes we me don't... think of Homeward Bound. Oh, yes. Yeah, that, that one makes me Pulls cry. the heartstrings. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I just... 
I'm really slow when I'm doing, I'm engaging in self care mm -hmm. and I make sure I also leave, I organize my days really strategically, you know, like Tuesdays and Thursdays are my press days, my days to run personal errands or to see friends. Um, whatever comes first, whatever gets filled in first. And then my other days is when I see clients, I pick up my son, and that's all I really have time for those other days. So making sure that you put your free time and family time into your schedule. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. otherwise it would, like, not get done. Yeah, and my nap time before, or whatever I have to do before my son gets out of school, um, because then I him whining about, you know, I have to go to Target. <laughs> that stresses me well, out. I love Target. <laughs> I know. He's not there yet. <laughs> I think I've known you for, you know, a few years now, and something you talk about pretty openly is um, having been a teen mom. Yeah. And that's something that you mentor a lot of people on now, and you mentioned, you know, now it's something you have to consider in, in the balance of your life. What do you think you took from your experience of being a teen mom, and, and how have you applied it to, to all the work you're doing now? Boy, that's a loaded question. It's <laughs> a big question. Yeah, because there's years and years of wounds and, you know, um, healing that I had to do around that. But um, I think, you know, everything that I took came in phases because I, did, I couldn't see the end. I couldn't see anything positive in the beginning. Um, it was really difficult. Um, overall, I really took patience from my journey because I learned that I didn't have any. And then I learned that I didn't have any because I didn't grow up with it. So there was just, I felt like an onion every single, like, six months where I unpeeled something new. And then, So at know, the beginning, you thought, not that your life was over, but you, you were less optimistic? I was in college, yeah, my first year, so definitely I was um, really troubled. Um, I wasn't doing great in college at UC Santa Barbara. I was two hours away from my family. I became a single mother, you know, upon getting pregnant. And so, yeah, it was pretty devastating for, like, an 18-, 19-year-old to go through, you know, their first breakup. Um, by themselves, not knowing, you know, should I tell my parents who are traditional Catholics and will shame me or will disown me? You know, a lot of catastrophic thinking is what I went through. No one at school could relate to me. Um, so it was a very lonely experience. And yeah, so seeing anything positive was difficult. Um, and I did, I was depressed during my pregnancy, but I never let my school grades, you know, slip after I became pregnant. So that did ignite something in me academically because I was like, there's no way I'm becoming a Latina dropout statistic. I'm going to pull through, um, you know, I pushed, you know, beyond the feelings that I had um, for me to make it academically and then um, even the week that I gave birth, um, I, you know, I did take a quarter off, but I enrolled into community college and then also UCLA summer course. Um, and the week I gave birth, I went to school as well. So I made sure I never fell behind in my units. I graduated on time and then I did have postpartum depression after having my son. So... How, how did you keep going and find resources through that? Because like you said, maybe there are a lot of statistics, whether it's due to like cultural shame and stigma or feeling alone and isolated or mm -hmm. not having family support or resources. Like, that sounds tough. In terms of resources, I didn't have any. 
you know, I, um, what I did have was, I was at UC Santa Barbara, I did return after the summer course, after I had had him, so I returned in the fall. I can't recall if it was my sophomore, junior year right now, but either way, I went to office hours because I was still trying to, you know, uh, maintain my grades and do what I, I needed to do. And that's when that professor, he was a psychology professor, abnormal psychology to be specific, and that's where he told me, like, it sounds like, you know, you have every right to be depressed. Um, and I think that you would greatly benefit from going to therapy. And that was the first time I heard of that word. <laughs> I didn't, I mean, it was really like changed your trajectory though. It did. It did. And I, I need to say, I, I had heard of the word therapy before, but I hadn't thought of it as an option for me, for someone like me. I come from a low socioeconomic, um, household. Um, yes, I have, there's two parents, but they're immigrant parents and they always struggled financially. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so I just never thought that therapy was something available for me. And in addition to the socioeconomic stuff, what are some of the maybe stigmas around getting mental health help? Um, yeah, culturally, you know, I'm, I'm Latina, um, so, you know, Mexican and Guatemalan. My dad is Mexican, my mother is Guatemalan, and there's a lot of stigmas that in both cultures um, they they possess such as like, you know, it's only for crazy people, like people that need to go to asylums, people that, you know, are um, completely can't be off of their medication. It's for people, it's honestly for white people is what was said before, you know, people that are more open because we are not, we have to solve everything within the family. We don't involve the systems. Um, you, we use God instead. And those were very harmful messages, you know, that um, that I grew up with in the community. I can't say that they were really stated in my household because I think my family just genuinely didn't know about that, mm -hmm. uh, about mental health as an option. All they knew was, well, we just we just pushed through. They never talked shit, you know, about therapy. Um, it just wasn't talked about. They were open about emotions like. Um, stress and nervousness, which is common in the Latinx culture, um, nerviosismo, nervousness, I think is what it translates to. What does that really mean? What that would be what maybe we would call anxiety? It's like a level, of, yes, it's it shifts a little bit, but it's in a nutshell, anxiety. And um, so they always try to help me with, with my stress and anxiety by, you know, they would say, let's go have dinner or let's go, you know, come and eat, come outside, just take a break from what you're doing. So using resources within your family and your community that were more like trusted instead of using like, mm -hmm. the system. Right, right. More of a enmeshed family got type it. of resource. Mm -hmm. But when I got pregnant, that wasn't an option for me. I was afraid. My mom wanted me to abort my child upon her finding out. Um, really? So Even in a Catholic household? Yeah, all Catholicism went out the window huh. <laughs> when I got pregnant. So like the, the shame around being a teen parent outweighed maybe the quote-unquote sin of, ha of having an abortion. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, and, and my mom's story with religion is a little bit more different. Um, she, you know, liked to say that she practiced. She did come, you know, in Guatemala she was in a 
Catholic convention um, and school, but it was very abusive. Mm -hmm. You know, they they abused her a lot. So she, you know, upon coming to America, she didn't go to church or anything. She practices, I think, more so in her mind mm -hmm. rather, but she wanted us to be traditional and, and attend. Um, and my father did have a healthy relationship with, with religion. Um, but was too busy to to attend because of work and things like that. So they tried to instill the values, but it was also easy for us to not because they we weren't seeing our parents practice it. If you were to advise someone who came to you who was maybe a you know a teen pregnant person, um, when and if would be the right time to share with their family if they were scared about the response? It just it really depends on on. Because when I think Their about parents. my family, I'm like, oh, yes, tell them right away because mm -hmm. I know that they would try to be supportive. But that's not always safe and true that's right. for every person. Yeah, I, I did have to talk to some of my friends' mothers to help me find the language to communicate this to, my, um, to someone in my family. And I, I disclosed first to my sister. And my sister provided me that emotional support first and brainstormed with me, you should tell dad first, because dad has always been the more passive, um, nonviolent person. So then I told my father, and my father created the plan to tell my mother without me present. So it depends on who the person can trust, what adult is safe enough to, to tell and create a plan with. Um, so and it's kind of like... Uh, interpartner violence planning like you can't just maybe go for it you have to make like a safe sort of a safety plan yeah for you to for each safe. person's context yes yeah I would say so there's also agencies that I didn't know about that help teen parents um, with conflict resolution right or there's some agencies I guess we're in the LA area but El Nido is one of them that I know of that that has a lot of teen parent programs, and then there's Saint Anne's mm -hmm. in LA, mm -hmm. Los Angeles. Um, so those are two that come up to mind that are helpful. So going back to maybe what you took from that, do you feel like that has given you even more of a hunger to like do the work that you're doing? Because it sounds like you went right into like fight mode. I did. Yeah, yeah, it, it inspired me, motivated me for the sake of my son, for his future and mine. You know, I knew it was going to be a hard road, but I wasn't ready to give up at all. Like education has been a value in my family and in my life since day one, since I was in, in kindergarten, since I started school. So, yeah, that was very motivating for me. And then when my parents got on board with me um, keeping my baby, then, you know, that was even more the reason to prove to them that I could do it, that anything I set my mind to, I'm able to do and I'll take care of myself and any consequences that come along the way. I mean, it sounds like you had a lot of just resiliency within mm -hmm. yourself and something that I work with and I imagine that you work with uh, clients on is like building that resiliency because not everyone would maybe have that. Yeah. So what do you do when you have someone coming in who maybe has no resiliency or a different or a, a lower level of it? Yeah, so it's finding where that resiliency is and it may not look traditional you know, to someone that practices or has seen many moments of their resiliency, right? But finding any nuggets of strength is where resiliency comes from and validating that and making them feel safe with that form of resiliency and then building upon that is very important for individuals that feel hopeless or 
feel very quote unquote weak, but no one is. It's just about finding it. Mm-hmm. How do you help somebody find that? Well, it's it's that like strength identification. So just learning about how they think and learning about what it is they do in their day to day, and you know whether it's selecting their own coffee flavor, um, whether it's them, you know, stating a dislike or a like to someone, it's starting off really small and identifying those pieces and showing them like, you do possess these skills. And it's like decision making and boundary creating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then strengthening that, making them practice that in a safe way, cultural way, it just, it all depends on their lifestyle. And what's the importance of incorporating community? Uh, in the work that you do? It's it's everything because connections is what propels us mm-hmm. to heal, mm-hmm. right? Being alone, which some individuals are alone, makes it, um, it does make it harder. There's so many, so much research out there that proves that connection combats a, against many different um, mental health conditions. So, you know, for especially individuals that are so used to, you know, large families, collectivis- collectivistic backgrounds yeah. and enmeshments even, um, community is everything. And that doesn't have to be your biological family it could be a chosen family and for introverted individuals that's sometimes a little bit difficult to create because they have to go out and find that mm-hmm. but doing that you know is worth the the introvertedness pain it outweighs it the yeah. discomfort mm-hmm. and going to something like a group yes any type of group, whether it's clinical or non-clinical, um, meetup.com is a, a good resource where it sounds like a, a dating app, but it's yeah. like an you know, activity. It's so great. <laughs> For people who don't know, like meetup.com, you can literally enter like any city, hobby, mm-hmm. city interest that you have and like combine the intersection of it and like there will be a group for it. Yeah. Like, I don't think I've looked for one that like hasn't been there. Yeah. So yeah. everything from like gay Wiccan bakers to like there's literally like anything you can imagine that was like the most random thing I could think of but there's literally anything you can imagine and it's other people who are trying to meet people so I think folks often like don't go because they're like oh what if people don't want me there and I'm like people are literally signing up for this so that they can meet somebody yeah 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 and it's like hiking circles and all sorts of things yeah Hey, slutty scholars, if you are practicing physical distancing during this time, which in my opinion you should be, then take this time to do some extra self-pleasure or partnered play. Right now, our sponsor UberLube is offering a 10% off and free shipping when you use my code S&S at uberlube.com. UberLube is a luxurious, high-grade silicone lubricant made from clean, body-friendly ingredients. It's just silicone with a little vitamin E. The vitamin E leaves a velvety finish that actually moisturizes the skin. Don't be scared to order things online that you need to support businesses. I'm not a doctor, but when I personally get a package in this crazy time, I leave it out in the air for 24 hours, then I clean everything inside and outside with Clorox wipes before I bring it in. And of course, it's always good to wash your hands before sexy time anyway. So support the podcast by supporting my sponsor, UberLube. Again, you can get 10% off and free shipping when you use my code S&S at uberlube.com. That's 10% off and free shipping. Just use promo promo code S and S at U-B-E-R-L-U-B-E dot com. Now back to the episode. I mean, we were talking about some of the stigmas around like teen pregnancy and things in the Latinx community. And before we go more into that, 
how do you define Latinx community? Because it is such a broad range of like different cultures that, you know, have a lot of nuances. The X is meant to replace the masculinity and femininity of the words Latino and Latina that are often used to describe people in in our culture. There are many people that don't identify with masculinity, femininity, being a male or female, so the X is more to welcome, you know, be more gender inclusive. Mm-hmm. And I define Latinx as, as not just being gender inclusive, but just inclusive of all nations, countries where I don't know, Latinx individuals come from. Do you think the broadness of it is is positive or does it... um I think it's positive, but I know that there's some countries that don't want to be included. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just to each their own. Mm -hmm. I I don't impose, you know, the the word on anyone. It's definitely something I think people should self-identify as. So I think um, that's true for anything that we'd work with in therapy, like not naming someone for them. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think there's still a lot of countries that even the term Latinx, they, they're not embracing of. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it just depends. I, and some people don't even want to be Latinx, Latina, Latino. They just want to be like Boricua, yeah. <laughs> someone from Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. right? Just, I'm Boricua. So. so now that you work within this community, I mean, I know you can't speak for every Latin person, every mm-hmm. Latinx person out there, but what are some other themes that you see around, like, stigmas for mental health or sexuality work for people in Latinx communities? Where do we start? (laughs) So there's lots. There are a lot, but in the community, there's definitely this whole taboo around, like, no one has sex. (laughs) Like, we don't talk about sex Mm -hmm. because no one's having it. And that's, like, completely a myth and so far, like, off because... Absolutely everybody is having sex. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there's also, well, there's just a lot, but um, I think there's also a lot of shaming around um, the menstrual cycle, you know, sexuality and and, um, growing up, unfortunately, where the culture does a disservice to, to young girls. Um, who are menstruating, starting to, and... um, What are some of the, like, thoughts or feelings around, like, first period and things like that? You're disgusting. Yeah, it's it's very sad in a lot of households how, um, you know, they're seen as, you know, the view of them changes. They're seen as now sexual beings for... So then they're bad. Yeah, they're bad or... Yeah, they're they're disgusting because, you know, maybe they're not taught how to, you know, um, dispose of of uh, tampons or pads. Or even use or, tampons. Yeah, yeah. And most of the time in the community and the culture, we're not allowed to use tampons in the beginning until we're adults because that's, you know... Um, like a virginity mm-hmm. myth. Yes, yeah. The, yeah, you're... What's the terminology? You're, you lose your virginity to the tampon. And how is it different when viewing, like, sexual evolving for boys or for men? For men, it's, it, it is very common, in, like, how it is here in society where it's just like, yeah, the more girls you, you get, even from, like, young age, the more of a man you are, um, the more, yeah, so the younger the you start. kind of disparity of, like, women's sexuality is, like, not okay and gross and not talk about it, but, like, 
if you're kind of a player and a man, then like that's okay. Yeah, if you're a womanizer, mm-hmm. it's okay. You know, it 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 brings a value to the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where does that come from culturally? No, I don't know to be honest, but I know it's deep embedded, <laughs> deeply embedded in many cultures. Yeah, it, I think it's it's definitely from our the machismo in our culture and, and how like the males who, rule. For people who don't know what that is, can you explain this machismo and Marianismo concepts? The machismo is more so of, you know, the the men in the family um, have the final say. They Everyone kind of bows down to them. They rule the house. No one speaks. Um, so it's a concept of, like, desired masculinity. Yeah. Yeah, perceived, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but there are, and there are a lot of consequences if, you know, you do not, um, quote-unquote, respect the the machismo value um marianismo is is where the women you know you can think of it as like the women um wear the pants and the women are the strong ones the ones that are uh, dictating what's going on in the family or what happens within the system um so it's it's the opposite how do those or do those two things exist together I haven't seen that in, I think, in my cases or in my household. So I'm not sure, to be honest. So it's usually one or the other. More commonly, it's definitely one or the other. But nowadays, I wouldn't be surprised if both of those are trying to coexist within the same household. Yeah. Yeah. I know I came from a more Marianismo household. So sex isn't talked about. And when it is, it's like shaming towards, you know, towards women women and maybe... um, I would say masculating for people who are, you know, identify as men. Um, is anything talked about in terms of like trans folks? No, no, there. That's a topic that I think the culture still has a lot of difficulty with, unfortunately, mm-hmm. and something that is very difficult to embrace. Um, you know, and along with trans folks, unfortunately, individuals that um, identify with any of the identities of LGBTQ mm-hmm. um, are often shunned away from their families, disowned from Latinx households. And, you know, so the talk about uh, sex, you know, it doesn't get passed on. I don't know if this applies to the work you do, but something that I talk about with, you know, folks in my practice when they've experienced some kind of sexual trauma is um, if they haven't had any, like, sex education before, just having trouble talking to anyone about it or even, like, using the words of what happened. And so I wonder, like, how do some of these stigmas around sexuality impact trauma recovery for people who have had sexual traumas? Um. Repeat that one more time. I'm sorry, Nico. Um, for folks who grew up in Latinx communities who maybe didn't talk about sex, mm-hmm. how do they then find the words to process or talk about sexual trauma? It's definitely more difficult for folks who, you know, don't have that um, because it's, it's essentially a skill, right? It's a skill that we end up, just like a communication skill that you need to learn. And if so you yourself... often go unreported or unsaid for a lot of folks? Yeah, it definitely does. And then, you know, 
talking to the system in itself is also a, a whole other issue because oftentimes the reports are not either taken or nothing is done about it. But in terms of the language skills, yeah, it's, um, it's something that even survivors feel shame and confusion about because in the culture, there's also this whole like, well, it was your fault. It's what you wore or it's what you said. I've seen you behaving in XYZ way, um, you know, or I saw you look at so-and-so. So, you know, those messages are... So like victim blaming. Yeah, shaming and blaming. Yeah, they they get very embedded and come out most when an assault happens. Mm-hmm. I know you work with lots of different kinds of trauma, not just sexual trauma. And you've definitely stepped up in times in our community and in L.A. when there's been things like mass shootings, like the borderline shooting. I remember you posting something about what not to say. to people or how not to act around people who have just had a trauma situation or been a survivor of it. What are some things you wouldn't say to somebody who just experienced, yeah, a mass trauma event? Don't ask what happened. (laughs) You know, that's like the main thing. Like, don't ask what happened. Um, I get really upset watching the interviews, uh, the media interviews. Because it's like reliving the trauma. Yeah, they're asking like on the spot without providing any resources. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what families are doing as well. Um, because oftentimes people ask, you know, because maybe they're being nosy um, or maybe they do want to help, but maybe they aren't even equipped to help. Mm-hmm. They're, they, they're not um, ready to hear what they're about to hear. Or, you know, feeling-wise, they might get upset because it has something to do with someone that they wouldn't originally think would do something like that, right? So I I would say leave that question for after when you've done your own work and you're actually, you have skills um, to be able to help this individual. Being in their presence and silence most of the time is more powerful to a survivor than actually talking. Um, I do think that it's a myth to, in some households, that, you know, talking about it right away is the most helpful thing. No, sometimes, like, their brains just need to process on their own. Mm-hmm. So um, just having someone there with you. Yes, yeah, holding space. forging through the darkness, I guess. Yep, yeah, just hold that space and be okay with being uncomfortable in silence. Um, Has that been difficult for you to practice? I know that's something that I've had to practice in therapy, like just being silent with someone who's having big feelings. No, I love it. You like it? I love it, yeah. Maybe because I'm introverted myself. So you're like, thank God we don't have to talk. (laughs) Just be here with your feelings. (laughs) Yeah, but I I welcome those feelings. Because I think a lot of people, including myself, have been taught that like silence is awkward or that silence is like you're not doing enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, earlier on, I definitely felt like I have to fill in this empty space, um, this silence with something or else it, it reflects on the quality of my work. Mm-hmm. But that but isn't really the case. Just listening is doing something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially if, if for family members that are not therapists, you know, and shouldn't be their family members therapist, just hold that space and don't look at them in a weird or different way. Just 
hold space because oftentimes we do tend to look at survivors um, that are coming onto campus for the first time uh, since the incident or coming back home from a hospital or you know wherever they were displaced at and you have this look that sometimes hurts the people because then they feel like they're different mm -hmm. um, so you know shifting that look to a more endearing one is oftentimes most helpful mm -hmm. and communicating with them and asking you know the survivor what is it that you need from me to support you and really listening to that what if they don't know i think if you know i i just had an experience that i've already talked about on the podcast but you know a colleague of mine passed away traumatically and i think i noticed myself wanting the details of the situation because it helped me make sense of what was going on, but also not wanting to ask people close, like, well, what happened? Mm -hmm. um, but it has been, you know, all over the news, and I think, um, I don't know, it's, it's tough to come up with when someone says, well, what do you need? Mm -hmm. Or asking someone who's really close to the trauma, what do you need? And they're like, I can't even think. Yeah. Like, I don't know what I need. Okay. Yeah, that happens as well, um, oftentimes. So, you know, you can definitely try if this is someone that you're close to um, and you see them often, then you can try different things. And you can, I, I like, you know, to try notes as well. So like, I leave them a note, like, if anything I do bothers you, so I'm going to go get groceries. I'll bring them, you know, and put them away. So just but, like offering things that you know you can do, like yeah. I can bring you food. I'm going to do that. If it bothers you, please let me know. Yeah, practical things. And they don't have to let you know verbally. It could be in the form of a note or a text. Mm -hmm. um, so giving them that choice as well um, can be very powerful to them. I think that's great. What are some other things you wouldn't ask or say to someone who had just gone through a, an event like that? Lecturing is super common after mm -hmm. experiencing a traumatic incident. So like it's trying to say like, well, this is my experience. Mm, that's another <laughs> one. <laughs> but like, you know, when teens often are recounting or even like children that are adults and telling their parents about an experience, mm -hmm. um, a lot of times, you know, the parents or the caregivers go into this mode of like, well, I told you not to go there or like I told, you know, that I told you so. Um, is not helpful. It is not the time. Yeah. It is too fresh. Like, again, like just sit in silence and hold on to all of that and process it in your own work or with someone else. Should you really need to say that out loud to someone? Uh, the survivor is not the person to be listening to lectures. Even as direct or indirect as the lecture may be, it's just not the time. I think the comment that would piss me off the most is sort of the like, um, looking on the bright side comments yeah. like well at least you're alive right what do you think about those kinds of that's, support comments that's so invalidating mm -hmm. because there's such a thing of um survivor's guilt right mm -hmm. and that hits that wound so much deeper when you know you're told like well at least you know it could have been worse mm -hmm. it's like that what how yeah. You know, the emotional pain is so much greater than physical pain in, in many experiences. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they're alive, they have to now find that resilience that we were talking about. They have to mm -hmm. find the reason to live. And those are very, very dangerous things to be saying to someone because they can very silently be having thoughts of suicide. And that would just trigger that. I mean, you're working with people kind of along the spectrum of like crisis level times. And so I don't want you to give away all your 
all your secrets because I want people to hire you for all the <laughs> things. Um, but I think, you know, we're talking about maybe what to say to someone, you know, in therapy or as you're supporting them ongoing. But um, as we talked about in your bio, I know you've kind of been maybe on site or more available in like crisis management, like right after something. Um, yeah, I went to Hurricane Harvey after the hurricane. What do you even say to somebody well, who's just had this? Because maybe they're not in a space to, you know, process or no. resource. Like, wh- where do you even start? So you do psychological first aid, you know. Um, when it's recent crises work, people are usually not in the capacity to go into feelings necessarily because they're in survival mode. Like, yeah. um resources for the children resources for you know shelter wise food etc so just the basic level of need things versus emotional things sometimes come first especially in marginalized and low-income communities right um because yeah they just need to know like where am i gonna get my next meal where am i going to live you know after the shelter closes um so going in uh, just connecting them to resources is the most helpful thing that you can do for people that just experienced a crisis and are displaced or you know don't have the emotional capacity to go there yet hold that space until they do have that emotional like capability Mm -hmm. to dig in i mean clearly i wouldn't go into a space like that and be like let's talk about sexual pleasure (laughs) because it's not the time (laughs) or the space and um part of maybe the healing process going beyond surviving is like thriving so how do you help incorporate that like later on like if someone's going from maybe a place of sexual trauma and being just like in kind of survival mode to um, embracing their sexuality again. That's quite the journey, isn't it? You know, because yeah. um, there's a lot of triggers that could come along the way and they really need... Uh, Even pleasure. Like yeah. Pleasure can be a trigger for people. Exactly. They need someone that they really feel safe with. And I think that that work sometimes can't be done on an individual level because, you know, it, it can include someone else. But like definitely... Like a partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, partner. Um, or whatever floats their boat, right? Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, um, you know, I think finding that safetyness within their body, because even outside of sexual intimacy, um, them just not being familiar with what's okay in their body, um, what's a safe signal, what's not, um, words can still trigger somatic um, responses, and recognizing all of that is going to be really important for recovering after a sexual trauma. I think a difficult thing about that that I've noticed for, for folks is trying to figure out which, like, alerts within your body are ones to listen to and which ones are, like, leftover trauma. So for some people, it's like maybe they have a high level of being alert because they have had a traumatic experience, but it has helped them to survive and maybe will continue to. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's like leftover and unnecessary, like someone who just came back from war and they hear a car backfiring and they dive down on the ground, like Mm -hmm. not needed anymore. How do you help folks decipher like which warnings are ones to be listened to? Um, I like to go back to the nervous system and teaching them about, you know, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system responses and how to activate the parasympathetic responses so that they can go into that mode of like, I'm safe, I am okay. Um, Because many times clients in the moment or survivors in the moment, I should say, um, 
in the moment they don't realize that it's an it's a hypervigilance response right but afterwards they realize like ah oh, like i really didn't need to you know do that or or say that or ah oh, why did i feel that that way they're often left with confusion afterwards mm -hmm. so that's usually the time that time of awareness is when they um, can really benefit from this education of like okay well what are the the um, techniques that i can use in these moments, even right now as I'm panicking because I freaked out about that, to kick in my parasympathetic nervous system. Um, so I find that education is really helpful and just taking things slow, like just knowing that we build a list of triggering places or scents or, you know, things that have activated them so that they're now more aware that these are things that um, are triggers, you know, that where they're going to have a response and that's normal that's going to be something that they live with for some time until they can begin integrating their techniques during those moments. So the importance, I think, in trauma work is to incorporate body knowledge yeah. and the body. Um, mm -hmm. And it seems like talking only goes so far. Yeah. Um, what are some ways that people use like body somatic work in, in trauma treatment? There's all sorts, right? But just like, you know, there's using your senses is really, really powerful um, and, and trusting your senses, like the sense of sight, smell, hear, touch, feel, or that's the same one, right? Um, <laughs> Taste. All the senses. <laughs> <laughs> I said them all. Um, yeah, using your, your five senses and then your sixth sense, which is your instinct, right? Listening to that. Um, as simple as putting lotion on yourself or right now essential oils is like a huge thing with a lot of people <laughs> whatever floats your boat right you know um whatever makes the, the individual feel safe but um self-hugging there's um the tapping that's very helpful um and then as so simple for, for as people listening there are different like mechanisms and modes of therapy that specialize in Different. somatic type work so like for example you do emdr mm -hmm. um what is that <laughs> emdr it stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing and it's bilateral stimulation of the brain um we use a protocol to access memory networks to help to begin this healing and there's eight phases um the brain essentially heals itself through bilateral stimulation but there is a lot of work that goes before bilateral stimulation and that's phase four um you know teaching coping skills because we don't want our clients to go to leave session emotionally flooded right because we really target um, the most disturbing distressing thing in their lives whether that's an experience or an um yeah you don't just want to be like okay see you later Right, right. Yeah, that could be a symptom or, or um, sometimes an emotion because a lot of times survivors don't even have a memory, like a specific image, um, because maybe the trauma happened so young. But this modality can be used for things outside of trauma, anxiety, depression, adjustments, anything really. And it's been really beneficial, but I definitely mix it in with somatic work. So especially for my clients that dissociate, we toss a ball in between to bring them back to the present. Um, like you toss a ball to each yeah. other? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Or I have them stand up, or sometimes we have to just take a walk outside mm -hmm. um, to, to bring like them back. Themselves. Mm -hmm. I had a client that I was trying to get uh, additional resources for, like trauma specific things covered through their insurance. And the insurance company said that they at first wouldn't approve it because the client couldn't remember her trauma. Oh my gosh. 
<laughs> Isn't that so messed up? Yeah, obviously. Kaiser. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh my gosh, this has been like so good and so intense and all of your answers were like so spectacularly in depth and I like found myself just like feeling so many feelings as we're having this discussion so take a deep breath (laughs) I don't even know like where to end this conversation because I feel like it could go on forever but what do you want people to know about you know the work that you're doing and and how they can find you and um how they can get connected yeah um I do a lot of interviews where I share different nuggets of, you know, my expertise. Um, so that, you know, podcasts are pretty powerful, especially for people that are not ready to see a therapist, which happens, especially to many survivors. I'm sure so, that's why a lot of people have been drawn, you know, from your community have been drawn to your podcast because it's like a, a gentle open door. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I hear that a lot, that that's how they find me. Um, so yeah, finding someone, a provider that is, that someone that you vibe with, right? Someone that, um, you see yourself talking to, disclosing, because therapy is very intimate in itself. Um, it is professional, right? But it is very intimate. Um, so doing that research yourself is really important. And, you know, knowing that, you know, sometimes a provider is not a good fit, but, there's so many out there, especially here in LA. Um, but I, I want people to know that trauma, it's subjective and no one can define it for you. It's something that um, doesn't, you know, just have to be an incident. You don't have to have memories uh, about the traumatic event. Um, no one can, you know, no one has, has the power over you because usually trauma, you know, keeps you stuck in the past or fears is making you fearful about the future. So using mindfulness techniques to be, feel, feel safe in the present is pretty powerful. Um, and I would add that there's not a trauma hierarchy. You know, like we mm-hmm. are talking about maybe some yes. like big in the news traumas around like shootings and things like that. But it's subjective. You can have any kind of event that your body, your mind can like perceive as, as trauma. Definitely. Yeah, that's super important because I hear that a lot too. You know, a lot of comparison goes on mm-hmm. where like, you know, oh, but mine doesn't, uh, mine isn't as bad as, as probably other people you see. And So I don't know. deserve to be upset about it. Right, right. That says a lot about self-worth, mm-hmm. um, something that, you know, well, we end up working with. But yeah, that's... That's it. People can find me on my Instagram at Latinx Therapy or Latinx Therapist and um, BurbankCityTherapy.com. Thank you so much for joining. This has been so spectacular, and I'm I'm honored to to know you and have done school with you. Thanks, Nico. And I'm so impressed by your space. If you want to follow what I'm doing at Sluts and Scholars, you can find me on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars on Twitter at Slut Scholars, and feel free to email with questions or if you need additional resources at slutsandscholars at gmail.com.